You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. Good afternoon. Welcome back to the Propane Fitness Podcast. This is a different one today. I am speaking with the delightful Dr. Tim Kerr. He is a man with a fascinating story that I met a couple of years ago in a hot tub. And since then, he has served a prison sentence. And I think there's so much in here from the lessons that have been learned from being in prison, how they apply to you outside of this, and a lot of the incredible insights that he's documented at length <clears throat> in his monastic style blog called In The Dock. Tim, thank you for coming on. No problem. Good to be here. So, Tim, could you just tell us a little bit about your story and kind of the, the background from where we were in the hot tub <laughs> to where you are today? Yeah, I'm trying to think back to that hot tub moment. Um, yeah, at that point, I was, I think I'd been arrested at that point. So basically got into drugs and drug dealing at the back end of medical school. And as I was practicing as a doctor, just selling ecstasy and cocaine to my friends mainly and yeah eventually obviously as these things do it caught up with me and I got arrested at work and I was yeah life fell apart at that point as you might expect and I had to really look at myself look at my drug use and obviously the problems alongside that it took a while for that to sink in I think that's where we we met in the hot tub where like I'd been arrested, my life was falling apart. I was on a few substances in that hot tub, I, I think. That wasn't a great time of my life. And then, yeah, eventually kind of nine months after I got arrested, I accepted that I was a, a drug addict. And so fortunately at that moment got a place in rehab, which was quite a sort of transformative experience. It came at the right time, I would say. So I had the motivation to change and that fortunately came with an environment to do that in but then yeah after rehab the the police got back in touch and charged me and sent me to prison and yeah I was sentenced sort of June 2018 for four years and eight months and half of that so I got released last October and um, yeah released from prison into a lockdown which was uh, not exactly what I'd envisaged within myself over the years I guess that's you just got to play the cards as they're dealt for sure there's, there's so much in there that I want to, to dig into, but I suppose that the plus sign is we didn't get Legionella from the from the hot tub like some people did. Yeah, so I, I think when I'd met you, you had just, it was a couple of, it was a few weeks after you'd been arrested. Can you just talk to us about what happened with the arrest itself? Because I think that's quite a, a comical yeah, story. Yeah, it, it was a conspiracy. And so my co-conspirator got arrested and six months before me, no, sorry. He, he got arrested at one point. And from that moment, I knew potentially they would find out about me based on whether they could get into his phone. So in this limbo for a while, it takes the police a long time to get into phones. And eventually they did. And I was named on his charge sheet. This was in like December of one year. And I was expecting to get arrested at that point, but nothing happened. And so I thought, this is weird. And then he got charged, uh, sentenced, sent to prison in March of uh, 2017 and then two days later was when I got arrested at work so I thought maybe I've somehow got away with it but no, eventually they came and so it was somewhat expected um, and almost a relief but I knew okay the game's up there's no more uncertainty now I know exactly where this is going to lead kind of thing um, 
it was yeah. shift while you were at work as well is that right yeah yeah i'd, I'd, I'd worked yeah five 13 hour shifts in a row or 14 hour shifts so it was so annoying it was the end of yeah it was on a friday at 6 p.m i was ready to go home at 10 p.m or so after the shift and actually there was a like st patrick's night out that evening that i'd organized or co-organized as part of the doctor's mess so i was so excited to go on this night oh, out nice rubbish and i got arrested that evening they could have they could have chosen any other evening i wouldn't have minded so much but then basically yeah i was arrested and you stay in a cell overnight they question you in the morning and you go home so it didn't have to be that evening kind of thing and yeah so i was lying in that cell overnight worrying that they'd find my drugs at home but equally i was just like had massive fomo of this night out oh, that i was God. missing what? out on like the whole like fucking up my career and stuff that wasn't <laughs> front and foremost it was more like oh god what am i missing out on now so yeah that that was like how i got arrested and then yeah like i say you get you're in the cell overnight they question you you say no comment to everything and it's up to them to investigate further and stuff and so from that point onwards again i was in limbo really um, what a mixture of emotions short. i think to, to finish those long shifts which fully taken out of you and you, your house by the time you're on shift number five like your house is in disarray like there's there's dishes everywhere there's clothes all over the floor because you only get maybe 20 minutes at home before you have to go to sleep so mm. to have that plus the fomo of missing that stuff out plus the relief because the this idea of limbo is something i imagine you're well acquainted with now like i think everyone on a small scale goes through this through any exams and particularly with med school where there's constant you're constantly being examined and you could fail at any point mm. and so you're always in this sense of limbo and you, you'd rather just be told the bad news rather than have the uncertainty but then you've had multiple bouts of this since then how have you i imagine now that kind of chapter in your life has been closed how has that do you feel like you've reconciled those demons like you've made peace with them or are there any kind of open loops still floating around yeah i mean on uncertainty it's just something you get used to um it's it was such a long period of uncertainty between say arrest and going to prison that was like 15 months so you, you just normally you plan for the future a bit and tether yourself to future ideas and say oh, i want to accomplish this or I want to do that you just i just had to throw that stuff out the window and just live day by day beholden to the world in many respects and that's likewise how you deal with prison you just take it day by day it's generally quite an uncertain environment quite unsettled you, you can't really tether your hopes to anything too much and as we saw with covid suddenly changing everything so i don't know i, I guess the whole experience has made me much better at coping or dealing with accepting things can change very quickly and not to tether myself too much to future hopes or goals and to be able to change. I think the attachment to a certain outcome or expectation is probably what causes the suffering in that kind of situation. And when you can fully make that leap and be like, okay, I'm prepared for worst case scenario and it's happened now, it's almost okay. I'm open to all possibilities that, that can happen at this point. The other big one that I think I definitely would have struggled with. I think most people would have, even though personally, I, I think my kind of identity is quite hedged across multiple buckets. But being a doctor is one of those careers where your identity is so wrapped up in it that to have the to to no longer be that, a lot of people would be left in a kind of sense of chaos. Is that something that you had to wrestle with? 
Yeah, to be honest, it's the thing I'm dealing with at the moment, really, because, yeah, as you say, this identity of doctor is, if not consciously, um, definitely unconsciously drilled into you, certainly at medical school. There's this like hidden curriculum where they want you to accept this identity that makes you happy to stay late and happy to completely devote yourself to the job and take all this bullshit and, and whatever. In the way they'll frame questions in medical school, they'll go, oh, you're on a night shift, you've worked 16 hours, what do you do? As if that's like a normal thing to be happening. And they'll throw that in as an MCQ, multiple choice question. So it's just kind of subtle, like drilling into you, this is your identity now. And that's fine, it works, whether you're able to practice as a doctor, but then to have that you know, taken away from you is very difficult because over a medical school is a long time period, like five, six years. And at a point of time in your life, early 20s, where you're forming your own identities and stuff. So it's really, it's still part of me. But when I was in prison, um, it didn't really matter because I could, there was obviously no way I could like practice medicine or didn't really have to deal with that identity. It's only now I've come out and obviously I'm thinking about what to do with life and where I should be. That's it becomes very difficult to not i've still got that identity but i can't use it and it's doubly difficult with covid and obviously i heard someone say that being a doctor is like being a rock star now in terms of all the press coverage it's had and i just remember being sat in prison this villain and all my you know former colleagues are being branded heroes so it, it's yeah it's definitely something i'm only just dealing with really that kind of loss of identity as a doctor and it's whether i can change my identity anytime soon into something else. So that's a really interesting thought about the identity of a doctor being seen as a rock star in in a pandemic environment. And I think that in itself is a form of imprisonment because it's the way that, as you described, the system compensates for the fact that you're massively underpaid as a doctor co compared to professional peers of similar level of time, education, energy output that you put into a certain job. And I, I know doctors that have left the career because they know that if they were to put this, the equivalent amount of energy and time and talent into investment banking or asset management or commodities trading or something like that, they would be compensated so much better. And so the only reason that someone might remain in the career, if they're totally indifferent to the, the subject matter of what they're dealing with, is this kind of the only reason they'd stay in it is because of the identity or the non-financial kind of trappings of the of the career so what you've mentioned there about kind of the multiple points at which you had to let go of something that that you'd been holding on to opens up possibilities that are that weren't available before is really interesting that's what i'm hoping it is a fantastic job being a doctor and obviously we all go into it whenever we choose it at 18 because there's something in us that wants to help people um, and improve other people's lives yeah I, I was certainly happy to forego it's still a very well remunerated job overall obviously not as well as investment banking or whatever but it comes with a, a tremendous sense of purpose so you're making a difference even though it doesn't really feel like that a lot of the time and it's a very stable career where you're going and you'll always have unless you do something really stupid sell drugs you'll always have a career to go back to and I, financially it's quite flexible as well i can't really think of any other job where you can just go i've got a saturday free i'm gonna locum and earn 500 quid yeah off this, that or the other so absolutely. especially it's, it's, in the lockdown when, oh, when you completely. Think everyone's lo losing their jobs left right and center and what what you do have is there's very little situation in yeah. that, that something that could happen globally where you'd be out of 
work as a doctor. Yeah. And for me, it's, I know, yeah, a lot of people will leave medicine on their own terms. And that's obviously absolutely fine. But I think because it's been taken from me, it's a slightly different dynamic. And it's almost this competitive edge within me that, you know, I don't want to let them take it from me i want to get it back or not have them not be beaten i suppose is, is a way of putting it it would be healthier just to yeah abandon it and do something else which is my plan but it's going to take time to reconcile that i think that's the difference between camping and being homeless isn't it or being under a lockdown versus just choosing to stay in the house so like as soon as something even if it's the same choice that you would have made <laughs> as soon as it's, yeah. you're told that you can't do it it changes the dynamic completely yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It, that's a very good way of looking at it. I suppose the, the other complexity is obviously now I've got, you know, a criminal record and this, that and the other, which makes transitioning into something else a lot more difficult. And I think it's hard, it's hard enough to convince people that like being a doctor entails all these transferable skills. It's hard, it's hard yourself to work out what these skills are because you're so used to it and you're just surrounded by other doctors who have all got the same skills. So you don't really think of yourself as particularly impressive um it's only when you compare yourself to someone that's not a doctor you go all oh, right i've you know i'm good at communicating and I've, i can do all this other stuff so you've got these skills as a doctor but then equally it's hard to convince people that having been through prison and survived it and done reasonably well out of prison that equally that is a very useful set of skills that would be beneficial to someone else if they wanted to hire me resilience or coping with adversity all that stuff from reading your blog, which is in the doc.wordpress.com, and from speaking to you, you're very candid. You're very open about all of this stuff, and you, it looks like you see this with quite a dispassionate view. Have you always been like that, or is this part of any kind of processing that you've done over the last couple of years? No, being a drug addict, you, you hide stuff, and I have always been quite closed off and would barely reveal anything to people which is why it came as quite a surprise to some people um, what I was going through. So, yeah, part of the, the process out of addiction really is to just be completely open. Um, it was this weird sense of like pride I had that somehow I wanted to convince people that I was normal and there was nothing to see here. It was all OK. And so I, I just never let people in on what was really going on, which is really silly when I look back on it. But it's just a, a mode you get trapped in, really. And it, you get some semblance of life behaving that way i had a few few good nights out a few friends etc so it was okay but it could have been a lot better kind of thing but yeah definitely just opening up and just, it's so much easier just having everything out in the open there's no fear of people that are going to rumble me now or uncover something i don't want them to know because like i say it's all out there and it's almost i almost feel a bit invincible there's no all my dirty laundries in public there's nothing there's nothing i hide anymore it just makes going through life a lot easier i would say everybody wears some kind of mask to some degree don't they everyone hides their demons so to have fully had to confront that and come face to face with it and come out the other end with a new paradigm with how you operate with reality is really cool to see from reading your stuff and seeing how reflective you are i think there's a lot of really admirable things that have come out of this whole process and it seems like you've metamorphosed as a person as well. I guess there's many factors that have fed into that. I don't think many other channels would know or talk about gyms in prisons. About what the gyms are really like there. The thing with prison, every within each prison, there's huge variation in your experience in there. So if you're on one nice wing, there'd be other shit wings in the same prison. But yeah, within each prison's got its own 
there's no sort of gold standard of what a gym should be like in a prison. So some are good, some are bad. And your access to those gyms, again, is, is completely variable. The open prison I ended up at, you're allowed three gym sessions a week and the gym was tiny and you had to, you have to queue up like almost an hour before to get in the gym. Because if you want the squat rack, you've got to be number one or number two in that queue. Oh God. Okay. You know, and, and it being a prison, people push in and this, that, and the other. If you've only got a one hour session. So, you know, if you don't go on the squat rack quick, you're not squatting that day. So it quickly became apparent to me that it was just going to be an absolute nightmare to try and like really progress in weightlifting because you need a lot of consistency particularly me i've never been particularly like good at building muscle and stuff so i literally switched to running because it being an open prison you can run as much as you want and i can't really stop you running basically and then come lockdown we were we got our hour of exercise each day like the rest of society and so again luckily we could continue to run but the gym shut so had i chosen you know weightlifting in the gym then all those gains would be lost because of lockdown wow okay so it'd be pretty limited and then just yeah. people it, yeah because people were making their own like weight makeshift weights and stuff out of two liter water bottles and just strapping them to broom handles <laughs> just these ridiculous contraptions but there was an absolute shortage of home gym equipment like i I imagine the manufacturers were just never prepared for a sudden upsurge in home gym yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's normally quite a niche thing because unless you've got a lot of money, the equipment's always going to be a lot better in the gym. And the stuff you'd have at home is always going to be a bit not very good. <laughs> it, it's shattered my expectations of... I just assumed that in prison, it's all standardised. You get total ongoing access to the bench press and everyone's just huge but then you're right like how do you control your calorie intake like how do you say oh i'm going to do a bulking phase like i imagine your portions are pretty set so yeah in terms of so your access to the gym is you, you have to game it basically so the first prison you end up in is not obviously where you'll stay the entirety of your sentence so if you behave yourself you might get to a better prison with a better gym but even when you're in that better prison you might only get three gym sessions a week so then if you're really into the gym you need to work in the gym and then you can get practically unlimited gym but then by working in the gym you can't do a better job with better pay or whatever so for me i wanted to do, do other more interesting work like mentoring and stuff which meant i couldn't work in the gym basically so i actually ended up doing a personal training course just to get more time in the gym <laughs> which I don't know if that's two and a half grand well spent. <laughs> grand as well. Yeah. Oh, God. It was this real, like, they, yeah, they sign up all these people at the start of, say, a 10-year sentence. So that two and a half grand is accruing 5% interest oh. over a 10-year. And it's, these people will never earn enough money to pay it back. So they're just taking government money, basically. So you became um, a personal trainer so that you could... Oh, yeah. It was like, yeah, just to get more gym time. Yeah, that was... <laughs> because i thought it'd be useful to get some sort of like qualification or, or whatever maybe i can use it but it was such a poor quality um qualification i wouldn't trust any of my classmates to to teach any sort of fitness um or just teach generally it was very very by the book course it was literally like sign this paperwork make sure you pass these like health and safety tests but i would never ask these people what's correct bench press form or what is a calorie yeah i've seen the personal training exam 
papers and yeah. the theory stuff is it's straight out of a 1980s bodybuilding encyclopedia <laughs> book yeah. or something isn't it yeah it's it, it's fine i guess it's okay it's like a very entry level could you work in a gym and know roughly what the equipment does and stop any disasters happening but obviously it's not designed for people to be able to like program specific progressive stuff for weightlifting or running or, or whatever but obviously anyone with that personal trainer qualification will claim they can do that because that once you've got it you can just claim what you want that's designed uh, to stop you killing anyone in the gym and then beyond that you're on your own basically yeah and then obviously people take supplements legal or illegal and get very big and then people will take their advice because they're big um and so and there's obviously a lot of like bullying and stuff that goes on in prisons i've seen people with the worst you know deadlift form or or whatever and i just have to look away <laughs> Because we have people, the oh, the fitness myths that go around in prisons is just absolutely. You despair on one end, at one end, but obviously you find it quite funny. Um, the stuff people do um, to get in shape. I don't know why, but everyone started running wearing like bin liners because they thought it would help them lose weight. Now, obviously, temporarily they will lose a lot of weight because they've sweated it all out, but then immediately they'll gain it back. But they just still persisted. <laughs> deep in, into the bro into bro land, haven't they? That is yeah. hilarious. But it's so you, there's no you can't validate anything because you can't just research it on the internet or, or look it up or whatever. You just do what these what other people say. Really, in terms of diet and stuff, you get again hugely variable prison to prison. Generally, you'd expect hospital canteen level of food. General, I think they legally have to give you one vegetable portion, which is usually green beans from a tin one carbohydrate of like white rice or potatoes and then some sort of casserole or lasagna or some sort of vague meat product and that, that you're only entitled to 90 percent of the country's diet so <laughs> well that that was it they, they try and improve the food in prisons and they, they'll they, you know they'd occasionally make some really nice proper homemade stuff they'd grow vegetables on some farmland and stuff and people would moan because it wasn't like mcdonald's and you're like i mean this is what you should be eating but <laughs> They're just absolutely clueless. That is amazing. But yeah, basically you can, so every week in prison, you get a sort of uh, food order, basically. You get a list of, basically imagine what you could buy in a corner shop because it's supplied by Booker Cash and Carry. It's fine for some things, but obviously like protein powder, you would never buy in a corner shop. And so it's difficult to get high quality nutrition. But saying that some people ate really well, but they had to spend all day cooking. Um, so they'll just be like cooking lentils and this, that, and the other all day. So I full credit to people that went vegan in prison, for example, because it's very difficult to do. Certainly very difficult to get enough, you know, calories in and, and whatever, but it, 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 it was possible and heartening to see in a way. But like I say, they literally spent all day in front of a microwave. Yeah, I imagine that'd be so difficult. So, th so the self-catering facilities then, if you want to double up on your food. Yeah, like I said, they only have to provide you one meal a day. So you have to cook your own meal um, in the evening. So I was, I can't, really be bothered spending a lot of time cooking so i would just have pasta um just pasta and olive oil on on the times um generally we get two meals a day cooked but some on weekends it was like one i'd eat i'd eat their food and then i'd have my own sort of pasta in the evening which was, i was just like look it's calories it's fiber that'll do you know <laughs> yeah fair enough yeah 
Hey, Johnny here. Just a really quick interruption to this episode to let you know about a resource we now have up and running on propinfitness.com. One of the most popular questions we get from readers and listeners is, hey guys, what would you recommend for my starting calories for fat loss or muscle gain? How much protein, carbs, fat? How many calories should I eat to begin my journey as a starting point? Normally, this is something that we do for clients when they come into our program, The Propane Protocol. But recently, we have opened up the calculator that we use for all of our clients so that you can get a free calculation, a free starting point of what we would recommend if you were to start as a client with us for your protein, carbs, fats, and calories overall for either fat loss or muscle gain, customized to you and your goal. If you want to get access to that, it is totally free. You just have to go to propanefitness.com forward slash calculator, enter your information, and we will send your macros and your calorie recommendations to that email address. And we'll also send you a few free resources over email just to pad that out and ensure that you have the best possible chances of reaching your goals in fat loss and muscle gain. Hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. One of the other things I, I wanted to discuss with you is long form writing and even long form reading is becoming something that is so rare nowadays. And we've noticed this with propane fitness. We've seen like we used to write long form blogs and then over a very short period, probably like two years, traffic started to drop with the blog kind of content and people wanted much more quick, snappy, content dense kind of things. And that's just, I, I completely put that down to shorter attention spans, social media, the emergence of like TikTok, that's a pinnacle of all this. Like you can't compress anything any further really than into 10 second video. And so as a result, we're losing our attention spans and people are becoming less able to even to even go deep with anything. Whereas I feel like for you, the last couple of years, you've been completely like living monastically and you've come out of this with a master's degree. Have you noticed a shift like before and after, not only in your own internal state, but also in looking at the, the kind of attention economy now that you've come out and seeing like a two or is it like a two year skip forward in how social media is and all of that? I remember the first time I had that sort of experience, I went to rehab. And so equally like in prison, you're cut off um, from the outside world. And before I went to rehab, I was very into like Twitter and like just spending hours and hours on Twitter. Because And I th then when I went into rehab, I was like, it was fine, like not having Twitter, not being so up to date with the news. It was absolutely fine to read the newspaper the next day. I actually enjoy spending time reading it. And so I think the world is very big. And I think now we're obviously very connected over the internet. It, there's certainly for me, there's this need to like know, want to know absolutely everything. So I think that's where the lack of attention comes from. You want to know little snippets of absolutely everything rather than spending the time, as you say, to read like a long form you know, essay or book or, or whatever. I, I still suffer a bit with that myself. I mean, I'm revising for exams at the moment. And what I should be doing is just reading one or two good research papers fully and understanding them. But instead, I dip in here, there and everywhere. And I'll try and read like 20 or 30, um, like just the abstracts. And I, I know for I'd write a much better essay off the back of that, having read one or two research papers thoroughly rather than 30 very briefly but yeah it's just this kind of this lust to to soak up all knowledge and know everything but that is the most tame form of procrastination being like oh i, <laughs> I read 20 abstracts of, of those different papers rather than like literally spending the entire day like deep in hagen and 
Netflix and Double yeah, I think yeah. Obviously, going through prison, I was basically cut off from the internet and stuff over certainly the first year and a half. There was none of that, and yeah, I definitely noticed. And I think TikTok came out whilst I was in prison, and I definitely noticed a shift before I went into prison and after prison in terms of how, yeah, how the internet works these days. And I think having that long time period, longish time period, to see the difference, you I could track the change. I think the internet originally was this kind of thing where you'd go and explore. So you'd go and I've got a question, I'll go and Google this. And they'd have these really, what would now look like archaic websites. And you'd have to really trawl for information, but you'd have to really be active um, in looking for that information. Whereas of course, now everything is algorithmically fed to you. Like me on Twitter back in the day, I was just there swallowing up whatever they wanted to, to throw at me and i think that's the, the key change really and that's how I, I try and live life now a bit more active like i try and choose what i read and choose what information i want and try not to be fed stuff isn't it weird how that's a rare thing now to say i'm someone who chooses what i read like i i consume media deliberately like mm. it's quite a scary situation that's even become a thing and i'm so bad with all of these things like I, we've been growing our twitter account recently and it is such a compulsive app to use and it does just feel like yeah you log on and there's just someone with a hose pipe and he's just firing up your dopamine receptors and, and it's not inherently satisfying and as you said like it produces addictive style behavior but when you stop you don't have any kind of craving so you're just like oh actually it wasn't inherently satisfying at all <laughs> Yeah, I think that that was the key thing was just being completely cut off from it. So social media, for example. So before prison, I had Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, sort of Snapchat, etc. And obviously all that stops and it was absolutely fine. Um, you, you didn't need and in it was replaced with like actual social contact in prison because obviously you're living with, say, 60 other people on a wing and you can realize all, all that stuff's not really necessary and it's a surrogate really for actual social interaction isn't it and so i'm definitely a lot happier without it i've not really gone back on it now but as you say you kind of you, it's almost impossible not to engage with these things these days i get my grocery shopping from sainsbury's and for some reason the only way you can complain to sainsbury's if something's wrong is through twitter they don't have an email so i've had to sign up to twitter in order to message <laughs> sainsbury's and then obviously I, I noticed the odd thing on twitter and end up spending you know more and more time on it which is really annoying and something i really try and keep in check but certainly i don't have any of the apps installed so it's not like i'm being fed notifications i have to go and type in twitter and go on it kind of thing i don't use facebook i don't use instagram i just speak to people do you ever see yourself going back to facebook and instagram Facebook, no, because it, it, it really, even before prison, I was like, this is really rubbish. I think it's quite old, antiquated. I think Facebook's um, now, it, it, nowadays, it's just a way for middle-aged women to share anti-vax stories. Yeah. I heard someone describe Facebook as an advertising platform disguised as a communication one. I think that's completely true. Yeah, I think, yeah, maybe among our generation, Facebook's had its day. I, I hear, was it Gen Xers or whatever are not using it at all, and they use TikTok and other stuff. Um but yeah, I, I find myself going back on it occasionally just to see, not Facebook, but Instagram, and just to see what people are up to very rarely, like once a week. Is there anything from the perspective that you have now, having come out of the monastic life, you've dropped a lot of the kind of rubbish that, that wasn't serving you, 
that you would advise anyone listening to to drop? Because I I think it's usually with the contrast and when you can see the the deficits in, in other people that you're like, oh my god, like why are you doing this? This is only causing you a a problem. Is there anything you people do day to day now that you would like if you could put on a billboard and be like, stop doing this? I think yeah, living without technology constantly in your presence, I think is is a good thing to do. And I go running and I just I'm constantly bumping into people that are on their phones, not looking. I go, I know I sound like an old man here, but and they'll get annoyed at me that I've got in their way, even though they're the ones not looking and paying attention. I just think set aside like an hour to do your Twitter or whatever, and then do real things um, outside of that time. Because, like I say, I think yeah, I've definitely noticed that all all that kind of yeah social media and and things like that are, are, are a surrogate really for real communication and it, it's less considered. So one of the nice things about prison was letter writing where, because obviously you don't have better communication tools, you have to like handwrite letters to people, but that's really nice how you'll actually sit down for an hour and really think about what you're going to write down rather than just flashing someone a text or whatever. So you're more deeply connecting with fewer people. I guess that would be my message is connect more deeply with fewer people rather than trying to superficially keep together hundreds of people. I think it's a more sort of human way to exist, really. I've heard Simon Sinek talking about millennials saying that part of the reason why generationally that generation are so much more flaky socially is that they're not, they've never been able to train that muscle of building deep connection. And so they'll text a mate meeting something meeting somewhere and then if a better offer comes along they'll just flake on it there's no sense of of cultivation of that do you agree with the the johan hari approach of i don't know if you do you know who he is i've heard of him i've not actually got around to reading his books yet okay so his his fundamental idea he wrote a book called lost connections which is about sorry no i i tell you i bought that book because i think it came out just before i went into prison but i never read it (laughs) i read his other book chasing the screen but yeah i've literally got lost connections on my shelf up there oh fair enough that's that's (laughs) serendipitous so I, i imagine he'll probably have talked about this in his other book as well but the whole idea for the listeners is that people who have addicts particularly to opioids have features of lacking social connection in their lives and he talks about some data with soldiers who had a social support structure and were given high doses of opiates and opioids and then when they came off they didn't have any withdrawal symptoms but and he's basically what you said there that often addictions kind of form a surrogate for social connection is that do you agree with that model or do you think there's do you think he's missing anything there no, I think he's on the money there. I think if you look at the work of Robin Dunbar, the anthropologist, um, he came up with the, the Dunbar number of these sort of ideal number of sort of people you should have in your various circles. And equally, that when you connect with someone, you release oxytocin, which I think oxytocin or, sorry, not oxytocin, what are they called? Endorphins, which are obviously your own opioid or opiates so yeah social connection literally replace or it's the same basic chemicals that you're replacing with heroin or any other addictive drug and equally if you look at my own life most of the time i was you know alone isolated very poor sort of social connections and obviously not connecting deeply with anyone really and 
because I kept the walls up. And so absolutely, that's where drug addiction crept in. And I saw in rehab as well, the transformative thing in rehab and to an extent prison is you're suddenly forced to connect with strangers without social media or the ability to really talk to the outside world. But you connect more deeply and suddenly the notion of wanting to take drugs evaporates, which you have to put down purely to that sort of sudden um, restoration of social interaction. But of course, once people leave rehab, they go back to their disconnected lives beforehand and most will relapse. And that's the problem. That's interesting. I think another feature of that loop, particularly for me, I, I, I think my source of compulsive behaviour comes from the fact that like all of my work, both in hospital and out of hospital, comes from being on a laptop and being having to be playing the social media game and and it comes from it eventually it trains your brain to be in a, a state where any moment of silence or boredom just instantly has to get filled with either the sense of oh I'm, I'm not working i need to be productive or i'll just check what this feed says and i'll just check whatever this is and that that ability to sit and be alone with our own minds has become so rare as well and i went on a meditation retreat which was 10 days of, of silence for that was a couple of years ago and it, it breaks that attachment to the point where when they give you your phone back at, at the end of it you're actually like oh actually i don't want it can you keep it but i think without pushing through that and without being able to sit and actually process the mass of stuff that's just rattling around in our heads we're always going to default to the easier option of checking the feed or whether it's substances or, or whatever do you feel like the writing was a form of therapy for you yeah i would say so it's it's well i find in, in any context i find writing is just a way of as you say taking consolidated thoughts in your head and putting them down on paper so even in an academic sense it's all well and good having these ideas of what you think about a topic but until you've written it down and solidified you've acted upon that and you, you don't really know what you're thinking in a way and so equally with yeah obviously more emotional thoughts and stuff and um, it's very helpful to write them down and then they, they leave the head basically it's i'm sure there's some neurological or neuroscientific explanation for it, it it's reformulating the thoughts and almost re rewiring or reprogramming the way you think because it yeah. forces you to be a bit more balanced and if you're having really negative ruminations once you've written them down you can then there's then space to write positive stuff at the end and then you feel better. Um, I think you can quantify it as well. You can see the, how much, how much it, it actually takes up in terms of space. Whereas if it's just loosely in your head and there's nothing that's being done with it, it's, it's just always sitting there. And this is the fundamental idea of David Allen who wrote Getting Things Done, one of the kind of OGs of productivity. And the whole idea is that if you don't capture and clarify and reflect on these things that come up, then they just open loops in your head and they just keep going round. So you're like, oh, I need to fix that fence. And then mm. you don't do anything about it. And then for the next few days, it's just there somewhere in the back of your head until it's acted on. And so the whole idea was to try and capture everything and whatever it is, just get it out on paper and put it into a process so that it's not, your mind isn't just holding a bunch of open-ended ideas but instead it's used for actually processing them and i think that can be taken from the productivity world and applied very much to 
the emotionally driven thoughts that we have as well. Yeah, I would agree. It's you're right. I've one thing I took up in prison was creative writing because sometimes it can be hard to. I still find it really. I find that the true sort of reflective writing I do on no particular topic really hard because there's so much you could write and it's so difficult to tether it down to anything. But creative writing, you're given a prompt and you're you're writing like a fictional story about whatever. But then in that, all these other ideas and thoughts from your head go into the writing and they, they call it your own voice, basically. And so that's so even if you're not specifically aiming to make yourself feel better or, or whatever, your what's going on in your head just emerges on the page, even if you're writing something dispassionate. Yeah, that's interesting. I think you've developed a bunch of skills that are so rare now, and it seems like it's opened up a bunch of options and closed some others. What's your plan for the future? No, I don't have any like specific nailed on goals as yet. Um, I like writing, and so I'll continue to do that in some form or another. You know, I've entered two writing competitions this year, um, so we'll see how that goes. Um, obviously, having been through prison, it's just such a bizarre system that we still have as a country society and it doesn't work in any way shape or form i feel almost obligated to do some prison reform type work to try and improve prisons in in any way i can really because there's few people that go to prison from well-educated backgrounds that can articulate what goes on in there and that's why i feel there's some onus on me to do that and in a way it's not wanting to have wasted two years. If I just came out of prison and ignored it, that it ever happened. I've done nothing with those two years. So there's still a bit of me that's, I need to turn that, you know, wasted time into productive time. But anyway, yeah, so I feel quite passionate about prison reform and that sort of stuff. I'd hope to do some work on that. As you say, I'm, I'm doing a master's degree at the moment, which could lead to some sort of research career or PhD um, in terms of a sort of immediate thing to do. But it's so hard with lockdown. It's so hard to really work out where anything is going. So that's why I've just I'm sitting back a bit and just seeing what happens. Really, yeah. I think most people will be in a similar sense of oh, I've lost my job and there isn't something to go back to. And so I think what you're doing of <clears throat> sharpening the axe is is probably the best way. And I, I love the idea of doing the prison reform work. And to me, from the outside, it looks like the the logical next step would be weaving a book together. I don't know if that's something you've thought about doing uh, well yeah back to writing it's everyone in prison seems to think they can write a book about their experiences which either tells me everyone in prison is inherently like narcissistic and thinks that their experiences are inherently interesting to anyone else but indeed it is such a crazy environment that people do really want to hear about it i think it's it's the latter and people are always interested to hear what goes on in there and this that and the other and yeah i suppose i've, I've got a fairly unique set of experiences there aren't too many drug addicted doctors that went to prison so <laughs> i think that there's a good sort of hook there for yeah but it, it's no small feat to write a book. It's like many thousands of words. So I think initially my plan is to just document and write stuff that pops into my head, little vignettes of prison experience, and then maybe weave that together, basically. But I'm definitely going to start small and, as I say, just enter small writing competitions and pieces of a thousand words or so and just get get good at writing and then take it from there, really. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think although everyone in prison will have had some time to sit and 
contemplate stuff. And I, I, I imagine most of the people that do want to write a book coming out of it will have something valuable to say. You in particular will definitely produce something that is particularly fascinating. And most people listening to this podcast will would agree. As you said, there's an overlap between mm. two areas which probably don't intersect very often. And to apply that that insight with your level of reflectiveness and, and candidness, candidness, is that the word? Candor. Candor, yeah, is yeah, is, is a really unique combination. Nothing particularly interesting happened to me in prison. Like I, I didn't really see that much. I was always a bit protected. So I didn't see that much violence or shenanigans. And I had quite a sort of relatively easy ride through prison up to COVID. I don't, there'll be no, if I wrote anything, it's not going to be the shock value of, oh, I saw this person get stabbed or what, as you say, be more reflective of how I felt at, at those times. And yeah, I, I guess the, the, the unique lens of a doctor being in prison, obviously the healthcare within these those places is just absolutely crazy. Yeah. Alone. <laughs> and, and the lessons that have come out of this time that can be applied into what has, has given you a competitive edge in terms of the way that you function now. Do you think you'll ever go back to medicine? It's very much not up to me. I was erased 2019 and I think it was quite a positive experience being erased and that's a weird thing to say but I think the panel were happy that I'd done everything right since obviously being arrested and that I was fully had full insight into what I'd done and the, the ramifications of it and ultimately I was struck off because I was in prison and because I sold drugs and it's such a serious crime that erasure was the only option. You can apply to be restored after five years has elapsed. And on the one hand, I, I think, yeah, maybe it, it could happen if I continue as I am now, obviously abstinent from drugs and alcohol and, and behaving myself, then there's a possibility. But then equally in five years time, I'll, I'll still be a convicted drug trafficker and that's never going to change. And so it might still be a no. In a way, it would almost be nicer if you could, if it was, if I was erased forever and there was no chance of restoration, because then I could truly move on. But I think because that door is ever so slightly ajar, and there's, there is a possibility, then of course I have to at least try and, and keep it in the back of my mind. But I'm certainly not putting too many eggs in that basket because, as I say, it could just be a flat no in a few years, and, and that would be fine. And mm -hmm. um, so I'm hedging my bets a bit, which is why I say I'm trying to do a PhD obviously allied to what I'm interested in, which is medicine generally. And then that would bode well, but equally that would spawn another career if it's a no from the GMC. Even if it was an automatic yes, it's still five years away, in which case like hinging anything on that would, it still leaves this big gap of what are you Absolutely. doing? Absolutely. Yeah. I just want to live my life as I want to. I'm not thinking, would this action look good for the GMC? Would that action look bad kind of thing? I'm just, the way I live now is completely compatible generally with their sort of rules and guidelines and stuff. I don't think about it too much. And obviously eventually the time will come when I could apply for restoration and I'll, I'll give it my best shot. But, and it would be, even if I got restored, it's then the thought, I don't know, it's, it would still be quite awkward walking into a hospital knowing everyone could Google me and know, know what's gone on and the stigma of being having been erased and this, that and the other. It, it, it would be no sort of picnic once restored. I think that's their biases because that would be a full seven, eight years later. You're a different person entirely. You even look like a different person actually from, from when I last saw you. But yeah, that's still it's still annoying to have to then be at the the brunt of that. 
yeah, I'm always going to have this stigma of having done what I've done. It's always going to be out there. I generally try and own it, as they say, and, and be, as I say, open about it. And my my reasons for having done it are, are out there and I think understandable to an extent. So, yeah. Yeah, Tim, it has been absolutely fascinating talking to you. I think there's a lot of wisdom in there that a lot of people will appreciate. Any closing thoughts or anything we've missed there? No, well, it, it's, it's been really nice talking about it and I've enjoyed myself. And yeah, I hope to see you in real life at some point in the near future. I hope so. Hey, Johnny again. Hope you enjoyed that episode of the Propin Fitness Podcast. We have a short request and a potential prize for you. If you enjoyed that episode, we'd love it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. It just helps the podcast reach more people and allows us to devote more resources and time to making this podcast better every single week. In return, we are going to be selecting one of the reviews, announcing it live on the podcast every single week, and sending you two of our programs completely free of charge, both Faster Fat Loss and the V-Taper program. One is obviously a fat loss program, eight weeks long. One is the V-Taper program, which is muscle gain focus on the upper body, designed to basically get you a massive bench press, huge chest, and a massive chin-up. Who doesn't want those things? So we're going to be sending both of those to the best review. And all you have to do in order to enter this prize draw to win those two programs is to head over to iTunes or head over to propinfitness.com to get the link for the podcast and then visit iTunes that way and leave us a short review with your honest feedback, your honest comments. Let us know what you think of the podcast, what we can do better, what you like, what you don't like, and you'll be automatically entered into the prize draw to win one of these programs. We'll see you on the next episode and we hope to be shouting your name out very soon.